0: Genesis again, chapter twenty-one. Genesis chapter twenty-one. Genesis chapter twenty-one, and we're going to begin reading in verse uh, verse twenty-two. Genesis chapter twenty-one and verse twenty-two, and we'll read down to the conclusion of the chapter. You know, I'm tempted to say it's. It's unlikely, not impossible, but it's unlikely that you have heard too many sermons on this particular text. And I say that uh, because uh, as, I, as I prepare and as I study uh, and I look and read the commentaries and so on, almost all of them, without exception, hopped over this particular uh, section of Scripture, which would lead me to believe that not very many churches have had this particular passage Uh, expanded. But we want to look at it this morning, uh, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 22. And I want to speak on how to get along with your neighbors. It says it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me, hereby God, that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not, or I know not, who hath done this thing? Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven hew lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven hew lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven yew lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up, and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned unto the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Do you ever have trouble with your neighbors? Have you ever got into a dispute with your neighbors? Have you ever lived beside somebody who's been quite difficult to live beside? You know, we've lived probably, I think, in about 11 different addresses over our married life, and uh, some of our neighbours have been fantastic, and uh, one or two have been less than fantastic. And I remember one neighbor in particular uh, who was always seemed to be annoyed about something or other. Uh, complained one time because our uh, seven or eight year old daughter uh, skate rollered past her car and brushed her, the mirror of her car on the way past. Didn't damage the mirror, just brushed it with her clothing as she went past. That was a complaint. She complained that our cat scratched her tree. <laughs> I mean, seriously? Our cat scratched her tree? I don't know what she wanted me to do about that. Uh, She complained because our garden was higher than her garden. Uh, Even though we lived in a split-level, semi-detached house, and she was the lower level, somehow or other she wanted me to raise her house up to our level. Uh, But uh, she complained about our garden. We had our garden landscaped, and uh, she couldn't see down the street uh, from from her sitting room. And so she asked if I would chop down all of the plants that were put into our garden, right down to the roots, so that she could see cars coming up the street. You know, sometimes people are difficult to get along with, aren't they? And that lady was certainly difficult to get along with. Well, this passage today speaks about neighbors. And uh, it's a very ordinary passage. It doesn't stand out as you read the uh, narrative of Abraham's life. It doesn't seem to say a whole lot. It's wedged between the birth of Isaac uh, in the earlier part of the chapter and indeed the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah in chapter 22, two great highlights in Abraham's life. And in comparison, when you read this short tract that we've just read, it appears so mundane, so ordinary. And yet it stands in the word of God as a reminder to all of us that in the everyday things and in the ordinary things of life that we find great opportunity for faithfulness and for witness. There's a little verse tucked into the heart of Isaiah's prophecy that all mature Christians know very well. Many of us, I'm sure, have memorized it. In Isaiah 40 and verse 31, we read, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Uh, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I wonder, have you ever thought about that verse and thought about the fact that Isaiah says before us three kinds of life experience. He talks about exceptional moments, and those moments we can look back to in our lives, all of us, certain events, certain days that stand out immediately as you look back over the course of your life. And in those days, we were called upon and enabled by God uh, to mount up with wings as eagles. Then there are days of special emergency. Days that press upon us with something that is urgent, something that needs our immediate attention. And in those days we are to run and not be weary. And so you look back at the end of such a day and you wonder how you got through it at all if it were not for the grace of God. But then there are ordinary days. Days when you simply walk and do not grow faint. That's everyday life. And here's the thing. There are far more ordinary days than there are special days or extraordinary days. And Genesis chapter 21 really sets before us an ordinary day in the life of Abraham. Here is Abraham walking, here is Abraham dealing with his neighbor. Friends, We mustn't wait for great occasions, extraordinary times to excel as believers. We must excel every day in the ordinary things. We must excel every day in the things that are menial and mundane. We must see here in Abraham an example of just that. Now we know Abraham hadn't got off to the best that starts with Abimelech. Remember how he had lied to him concerning Sarah. That he had told him that Sarah was his sister, a half truth, and not his wife, a complete lie. And as a consequence of that, Abimelech rather doubted Abraham. Yet withal, he allowed Abraham to stay in his land simply because God had chastised Abimelech and told him that Abraham was a prophet of God. And so here was a man who was a professed follower of the true God. And yet he had deceived this unbeliever, this man called Abimelech. So there was a a sort of bittersweet relationship between them. And yet they were living in the same vicinity. They were living in the same territory. Well, there came a day when Abimelech, king of Gerar, decided to make a visit unto Abraham. And this he did because, notice he had a concern in verse 22. It says, It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, that thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now again, remember earlier in Genesis, we read how that Abimelech granted Abraham the opportunity to remain within the kingdom of Jerar, within his uh, Gerar, within his land, and to prosper there despite the fact that he had lied to him. Now, the grace, this grace was shown to Abraham, as I said, not because Abimelech valued Abraham particularly or respected him personally, but because God had intervened on his behalf and no doubt had at that moment spared Abraham's life and provoked the generosity of Abimelech. And even though he knows him to be a prophet of God, Abimelech still has certain misgivings certain reservations about this stranger. You see, Abraham was a very powerful man. And this king is wondering if if he can, on the one hand, be trusted, but on the other hand, he has seen some things, he's observed some things in Abraham's life and his conduct that would suggest that he actually is a person of good character, that really what he did in lying to him was out of character for him. And so their initial meeting... You know, it was certainly a negative one. That introduction uh, would have suggested Abraham was not a good man. But in coming to him in this way, uh, you know, he's wanting Abraham to prove himself in some sense. And and Abraham, you know, must have been a little bit embarrassed by this meeting. Because here he had lied to Abimelech concerning Sarah. And uh, now he's to be rebuked by this request and this testimony from the king of that nation. Here's how it would be. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, you know what, I know that you're a Christian and I know that you attend Points Pass Baptist Church and I know you go there every Sunday and I'm going to ask you something. First of all, I want to ask you if you promised not to lie to me again. That would be a little embarrassing, wouldn't it? If you lied to them in the first instance you'd be a little shamefaced. And that was the situation in which Abraham uh, found himself. You know, he, he finds that this man flatters him in one sense because he says God is with thee in all that thou doest, and then he gets him to promise not to deal falsely with him. Now, Abimelech's observation of Abraham, as I said, is that God is with thee in all that thou doest. In other words, he sees God working on Abraham's behalf. He says, I see what the Lord is doing in your life. I see his blessing rest upon your life. And here's the question I want to ask us this morning. What does our neighbors observe about our lives? The people who live in our community, the people who live around you, the people with whom you interact on a regular basis, what do they say about your life? What do your neighbors see in you? What do your colleagues at work see in you? When pressure is on and when maybe you're in a stressful situation, do they see that you're different from them? Do you see that you respond, that you act and react in a different way? What do your children see? What do your unsaved uh, loved ones see? How important it is that we maintain a testimony before the lost concerning our Savior. You know, we have a responsibility, all of us, to be a good neighbor and to be a good testimony to those around. Colossians 4, 5 says this, Walk in wisdom to them that are without, to those who are outside of Christ, redeeming the time. God says, make the best use of your time with your neighbors. Walk in wisdom toward them. Walk in honesty toward them, says 1 Thessalonians, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, that they may have lack of nothing. God says, walk wisely with your neighbors. Walk honestly with your neighbors. Concerning the uh, office of a bishop and the qualifications of that office, first Timothy three says this of an elder and or a bishop or a pastor. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. People must speak well of him. They must speak of him as a person of integrity, as a person of honesty, of someone who's got a good testimony, of someone who's upstanding, someone who gains their respect. Ephesians five fifteen says this: "See that you see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise." And the word, the phrase, "walk circumspectly," literally means uh, to walk purposefully, to walk worthily, and with accuracy. In other words, our lives should accurately reflect the truth of Christ. Our ac- our lives should accurately reflect the truth of the gospel in our lives. So as Abimelech observed Abraham's life subsequent to their initial meeting, he came to the conclusion that, well, actually, this guy doesn't seem to be such a bad guy. He seems to be a person of good character. We just got off on the wrong path. And so he thought that maybe he was someone who could be trusted, and he goes to Abraham seeking a pact of non-aggression. He wants to assure himself that Abraham, powerful as he is, is not going to try to overthrow him or his son or his grandsons. He's just going to dwell in the land. He's not going to be—he's uh, not going to be upsetting the apple cart. He's not going to be involved in any kind of insurrection. And notice Abraham's simple response to this request in verse 24. He said, I will swear. That was it. So he comes and he says, I want you to promise not to lie to me again. And I want you to promise that you're not going to try to overthrow my kingdom. And I want you to promise that you're not going to harm my children or my grandchildren in any way. And Abraham says, yes, all right, fair enough, I'll swear. And that was it. You know, the Bible says this, and it's really an an important exhortation for us as Christians. Romans 12 and 18, it says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know what? A Christian ought to be the best kind of neighbor. To tell you the truth, when Christians move into the neighborhood, it should put up the price of the houses. Amen? Amen. People should say, Well, you know, I got a, when they're selling their house, and she will say, I got a Christian next door and that would be an asset. At least that's how it should work. It's not always how it works exactly, is it? But as much as lieth within you, the Bible says, if it be possible, live peaceably with all men. So Abraham did just that. He agreed quickly with Abimelech's request. And here's the thing. Our relationship with the Lord doesn't give us the right to trample over the rights of others. We should remember that. We're to treat everybody with dignity and everybody with respect. Here's Abimelech, who's an unbeliever, and Abraham treats him with respect. Now your neighbour might be an unbeliever, he may be a Muslim, he may be a Hindu, he may be Roman Catholic, he may be an outright atheist, he may be any number of things. But nevertheless, we're to treat him with dignity. We're to treat him with respect because he is someone who has been created in the image of God. He's someone for whom Christ died. He's someone that we ought to be trying to win for the Savior. And we're certainly not going to win him for Christ if our dealings with him are anything less than honest or if we lack integrity in our dealings with him. Abraham gave his word. And he swore that he would not attack Abimelech nor his children. Now today a believer, of course, is encouraged not to make such oaths, but rather our word is to be our bond. James wrote, My brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. In other words, God says, be a man of your word. You say something is so, then it's so. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you're going to be somewhere, be there. Be someone whose word can be trusted. That's one of the marks of a Christian. Can your word be trusted? Can people believe what you say? A Christian ought to be honest and truthful in all his dealings with everyone with whom he comes into contact. So Abimelech had this concern. And Abraham, he also had a concern. Notice he makes a complaint in verse 25. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not who hath done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. So it turns out that Abraham has his own complaint. He has his own concern. Apparently, some of Abimelech's men had taken possession of one of Abraham's wells. Now, the well, this well in particular was very important to Abraham. He wanted it back in a pastoral society such as they lived in, and in the Arid regions uh, such as the Negev is, wells are very important. Shepherds were forced to dig very deep in order to sink wells. And Abraham had done this at a place that was later called Beersheba. And it's possible, actually, he did this in response to the departure of Hagar. If you look back in uh, chapter uh, 21 and verse 14, it says, Abraham, we, we discussed this last Sunday morning, Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it on to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away, and she departed. And noticed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So it may well be that Abraham sank this well purposefully to provide for Hagar and Ishmael, but after they left the home, they somehow became lost, disorientated, and God had to point them back to the well of water. And it also explains why Abraham only gave her perhaps a a bottle of water and a little bread just to get her to the point of that well that he had dug for her. So it was important to him and Abimelech's response is interesting because his, his reaction to this complaint is one of surprise. He says, I, I wot not who hath done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. In other words, he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you've never mentioned this before. Nobody's ever brought this well up before. I, this is the first time hearing of it. You know what, friends? Many, many of our disputes are caused by simple misunderstandings. Much of the ill will that we bear in our lives is often driven by misunderstanding. You know, I remember a number of years ago I was uh, preaching at a church, and I'll not tell you where the church was, but I was preaching at this church, in the, and, and I was in, a, in an elder's home for hospitality uh, after the morning service. And I asked this elder what he did for a living. And he told me he was a pig farmer. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I said to him, well, how many pigs do you have? He says, I have 20,000 pigs. I thought, my word, that must be the biggest pig farm in Europe. 20,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. So I said to him, well, how do you feed that many pigs? He says, well, he says, I feed them late in the morning or in the early afternoon, and my wife, she goes out at midnight and feeds them while I go to bed. I thought, that poor woman, out at midnight feeding 20,000 pigs, she must be out all night. And here she was making dinner for us on a Sunday afternoon. And I looked at this fellow who was an elder in the church, and I thought, you're not much of a husband having your poor wife out working all night feeding all those pigs and then making her I said, be at home here at church this morning and then here at home making dinner for me. And, and I began to resent him. And I began to think he was a bad testimony. And I thought he was a terrible person. And so later on somebody else came into the home, another stranger came into the home, and he engaged the same man in conversation. He said to him, what do you do? The man says, I'm a pig farmer. And he asked him the same question. So how many pigs do you have? He said, I have 20 size and pigs. <laughs> 20. 20 is a lot different from 20,000. But here I was feeling ill will toward this man because I completely misunderstood what he had said in the first place. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Abimelech had given no sanction to this land grab. and He had not in any sense motivated his man to do this. When he heard of it, he determined to make the situation right. Many times people are upset with people who have no idea that those people are upset with them. That's why Jesus told us, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. You got a problem with somebody? Go tell that person what your problem is. Speak to them kindly about it. Speak to them graciously about it. Say, listen, I have a little issue, I have a little problem, I have a little concern. Something you said, something you did, Uh, you know, uh, you've offended me in some way. By all means, tell that person. But don't stew on it. You know, don't go and tell other people about it. Don't go and badmouth that person. Don't create division in the church because of it. Rather do what the Lord tells us to do. Go and sort it out. And sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. Fortunately, we would rather make enemies of our brethren and bear will ill will toward them when the Lord says if we would rather go and speak with them, we could gain a brother. You know, a long time ago a man gave me this little a pastor actually gave this little statement to me and, and to well he, he was preaching he, and he shared this statement. He said, It's better to think good of a person and be wrong, than to think bad of a person and be wrong. Think about that. It's better to think well of a person and be wrong than to think ill of a person and be wrong. That's true, you know. And clearly here's a problem as old as the Bible itself where we see this not only here in this narrative of Genesis chapter 21, but we find that James addressed the same thing in the church. If you look at James chapter 4, James chapter 4, he speaks about the same thing among believers. And he talks about uh, from whence comes wars and fightings among you. Come they not hence even of your lust that you war in your members. And uh, and he gets down to uh, verse uh, verse, uh, 11 of that chapter. And he says this. Speak not evil. This is James chapter 4. Speak not evil one of another brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if I judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? And the Bible warns us here about, about... Speaking evil of each other, about criticizing each other, about complaining against each other, about saying things, you know, a whispering campaign, a backbiting campaign, a campaign of gossip about another person where you speak badly of them because you feel badly toward them because there's some offense, there's some difficulty between you and them that you've never properly settled. And God says, Why are you doing that? He says, Who made you a judge? Who decided that you were in charge of this person's character in this way? Look in chapter 5 and verse 9, where he talks about contextually about the coming of the Lord. And he says this as we think about the coming of the Lord in verse 9. He says, Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Grudge not against one another, brethren. Lest you be condemned, behold the, behold the judge stands before the door. The Lord is just there, he's listening, he's preparing to come. We're going to stand before his judgment seat. Do we want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, having a critical spirit toward other believers? The word grudge there means to, to groan or to sigh. You know, Sometimes we get into that place where we hear somebody's name, as soon as their name comes into, a, into the conversation, you're groaning. Oh, him. You're saying, <sighs> fell up with him. The Bible says, don't do it. Don't do it. Make it right. So these two men were attempting to make it right. And they were in agreement. Abraham promised not to overthrow Abimelech. And Abimelech acknowledged the wrong of his man's behavior pertaining to the well that Abraham dug. So they made a covenant. If you go back to Genesis 21 and verse 27, And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven hew lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean mean these seven hew lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven hew lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me, that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear, both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned unto the land of the Philistines. Now what we have here is again an example of a cutting of a covenant. You'll recall this took place when the Abrahamic covenant was agreed. Uh, you remember how that uh, there was the animals were taken, they were cut in half, Abraham was put, a, put to sleep, and God walked through the animals. And in so doing, he makes a unilateral, one-sided agreement with Abraham concerning concerning his future and the future of his descendants. But here you have not just one person walking through these carcasses uh, and making an agreement, but you have two people. Abraham and Abimelech are walking between the dead carcasses uh, together. They're committing one to another. They're burying the hatchet one with another. They're putting the past behind them. They're committing to a harmonious future uh, together in the land. But then Abraham does something else. He Offers this king a gift of seven huge lambs. Now that's interesting. See, in the Hebrew language, the word seven and the word for an oath are very similar. The word for, uh, for seven is Sheba, and the word for lamb is Shabbat. So that when a man makes an oath, he sometimes said to seven himself. He sevened himself. And that's what Abraham was doing. He was affirming that the well that was under dispute was truly a well that he had dug. He severed himself. He made an oath. He promised Abimelech that he was not robbing him, that he was not deceiving him. He was not pulling the wool over his eyes. He genuinely had dug this well. It really was his property. And his man had no right to it. You see, here's the problem for Abraham. He had established... Himself as a man of dishonesty, with a reputation for dishonesty, and now he has to go the extra mile to make things right. You know, sometimes we have to do that with folks. Sometimes, if particularly if we've been on the, uh, the we've been the offending party, we have to go the extra mile to make things right. Jesus said, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or go with him too. You know, when you sit against someone, sometimes you need to go beyond mere apology. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm kind of weary of this culture of apology that we live in. You know, we're celebrities and politicians are forever apologizing for this, apologizing for that, apologizing for things that happened hundreds of years ago. You know this, I think it was this week, uh, Nicola Sturgeon apologised in the Scottish Parliament uh, for, the, for the persecution of witches in you know 200 years ago or whatever it was. She wanted to apologise that witches were burned to the stake. For all the things that she has to apologise for, I would think that one's probably way down the list. If you're going to apologise for Scotland, you could start with the, the bagpipes. Apologise for the bagpipes. They make a terrible sound. Apologize for haggis, that stuff's awful. But apologizing for witches, seriously. And you know, all of this is just political correctness. There's no sincerity to it, there's no reality, there's no substance to it. You know, but the Bible teaches us that sometimes when you make an apology, well, you have to make restitution. You have to prove the sincerity of your apology. If you go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, we come to the story of Zacchaeus. And you know the story well. The Lord Jesus comes through the town of Jericho. and verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was chief among the publicans. Now, that's not someone who runs, runs a pub. That's someone who's a tax collector. And he was very rich because he extorted money uh, from, from the Jews as he collected money for the Romans. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and he could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And a man ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Sakeas, make haste, and come down, for the day I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was going to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, notice what he says, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham, a true believer, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Look at Zacchaeus' restitution. He says, I give half of my goods to the poor. He'd become a very wealthy man as a a consequence of his ill-gotten gains. He said, I'm not going to live off this anymore. I'm giving it to the poor. And he says, if I've I've mistreated somebody, if I've abused somebody in the course of my business, I will not only give them back the money that they paid, but I'll give them four times back what they have paid. He didn't just say, well, I'm just going to apologize. He said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make sure it's right. Now, here's the question. How do you suppose the people in that area felt when Zacchaeus came and knocked on their door the next day and gave them back the money that he took corruptly and four times more? When he left, they probably said, you know, that Zacchaeus, he's he's not such a bad guy. He's all right. Do you ever get a tax rebate? It's always a happy day when you get a tax rebate, isn't it? That little brown envelope falls through your letter box, and you see that it has the revenue on it and you're thinking, oh, no, what's this? And you open it up and there's a check in there and they're refunding you money. But, you know, here's the thing. The tax office only gives you back what they owe you. Imagine if they give you back four times what they owe you. That would make an even happier day, wouldn't it? They're never going to do it. But Zacchaeus did it. Zacchaeus did it because he wanted to make things right. And I have no doubt that the people to whom he did it felt differently toward him that day than they did the day before. So what Abraham did this day in giving seven huge lambs to Abimelech was he built a bridge to Abimelech. And notice he says there that these seven lambs were a witness unto me. That is, they testified of Abraham's character. He says, I'm giving these to you to be a witness unto me. You know Romans 12.17 says we're to provide things honest in the sight of all men. Abraham was wanting to underscore the fact that he was an honest broker. That he was an honest person. That he wasn't normally a liar. That he wasn't normally someone who tried to deceive people. But that he belonged to the Lord and he wanted to make it right. And so he says, I want to give you these seven lambs as a witness to me that I really did take those well. Provide for things honest in the sight of all men. You know, a few months ago, not long after we'd moved into our house in Laurelville, I was coming out to church one Wednesday evening and I was distracted. I I can't remember all that happened. I know I was told our grandson was in hospital and as I was coming out the door and my mind wasn't on the job and I got in my car and I reversed down the street and i skimmed the front of my neighbor's car i just just skimmed it just brushed past it and i heard it as i was and i got out and i looked at his car and i couldn't see anything wrong there was no damage to the car that i could see none and i was tempted just to get in my car and go i'll be honest with you because i thought i haven't damaged his car my car's not damaged there's no harm done i've got to get to the bible study I'll just go. And the devil said, Do it. Go. But in another part of me we thought, well, I, I should tell my neighbor that I've hit his car. So I hadn't spoken to the man before. I just moved in. <laughs> How to introduce yourself to your neighbors 101. <laughs> Crash into their car. That's always a good start. So so I went and I knocked his door. And I said, How you doing? I'm your neighbor. I'm your new neighbor. <laughs> And he said, well, nice to meet you. I said, I've just crashed into your car. <laughs> Do you want to take a look at it? So he came out and he looked at it and he says, oh, I don't think there's any damage done to it. Don't worry about it. I said, okay, great. Jumped in the car, went to Bible study, and that was that. A couple of days later, he knocked on my door. He said, actually, he says, there was a, a little bit of damage done to my car. And he showed it to me. And honestly, you could barely see it. It was hardly a scratch. I mean, it was just literally a scratch. Just a tiny little scratch on the bumper. He says, I, I, I want to get it fixed. And I said, okay. Go, on, go ahead and get a price and let me know how much it is. So he did. He came back. It was £170 to get this scratch fixed. Now, here's the thing. I could have, I could have easily got away with that. Easily. At least in my own mind. But... Suppose for a moment somebody in my neighbourhood saw me scraping that car. Suppose somebody, one of the neighbours, my next door neighbour or somebody else, saw me getting out and looking at his car and then getting in my car and driving away. They would have put two and two together, wouldn't they? And what would that have said about me? What would that have said about my testimony? What would that have said about me as a Christian, let alone a pastor, you know, when you're, when you're a pastor and you move into a neighborhood, everybody knows you're a pastor before you arrive. They already know who you are. They know all about you. Imagine my, my testimony. Then if a, if a week or two weeks or a month later, I meet this fellow who lives next door to me, and I try to witness to him, and I try to share Christ with him, and he's thinking, oh yeah, you're the guy who hit the car and drove off no, no, no. We've got to provide things honest in the sight of all men. And, And the word honest there in Romans is translated beautiful. So Abraham that day, when he provided seven huge lambs of the flock for Abimelech, he did a beautiful thing in healing the wounds of their past. And that day, these two men came to an agreement and they decided between them to name the location of the place in which this covenant was made, in which this dispute was settled. They decided to name it Beersheba, the well of the seven, or the well of the old as a constant reminder of Abraham's generosity and graciousness to his neighbor in healing the wound. And then in verses 33 to 34, we have a continuation. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistine land many days. Now, Abraham had suffered loss at the hands of Abimelech's servants, but he didn't allow that loss to drive him away from the Lord. Instead, he got on with his life, every day working and worshipping and waiting on the Lord. And notice that he planted some trees there, he planted a grove. And the planting of a grove is, in, is in indicative of Abraham's faith in the promises of God, for it suggests that he expected God's blessing. In that place, he was expecting a constant supply of water. There, hence, he plants these trees. Now, the King James Version doesn't tell us the kind of trees he planted, but it's believed they were tamarisk trees. And there's a couple of interesting features about that tree. First of all, it's an evergreen tree, and therefore, in a sense, it symbolises that which is eternal. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then, it's also was a tree that is used for medicine, for healing. And Abraham wanted to mark this place as a place of healing where he and Abimelech patched things up and he wanted to thank the Lord that they had been able to do that and he wanted to worship in that place so Abraham planted a grove and understand in the early years of man's history that was the way in which men worshipped. The first sanctuaries that were ever built were erected in woods and forests and groves. Now later on in Bible history you'll find that man becomes perverse in his thinking, he becomes idolatrous in his ways and God starts telling them to cut down the groves and to destroy the groves. But at this point in time effectively what Abraham is doing here is he's building a sanctuary of worship unto the Lord. And notice what he did there. He worshipped and called there from within the grove on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. There's a new title that Abraham now gives us for God. Here's a new title for God in the book of Genesis. You see when he first met him, he was known as El Elyon, the high God, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Later on, he refers to God as El Shaddai, the God who is almighty, the God who can do anything. But here he calls him El Olam, the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the ages, the God who is unchanging, the God who is immutable, the God upon whom you can all Always depend every single day of your life. And that's really going to become critically important in his understanding of God as you go into Genesis 22 and he is asked to sacrifice Isaac. He's going to fall back on this truth that God is eternal. Abraham needed to know that God is the ancient of days, the one who's forever there. So he calls upon the name of the Lord with this significant name, El Olam, the God of perpetuity, the eternal, immutable God. Throughout his life, Abraham had been sojourning, he'd been traveling. But in this chapter, we find by planting a grove that Abraham now felt that he had a resting place in this land. And there are lessons for us here this morning. First of all, we see the weighty responsibility that is ours to have a good testimony with our neighbours. To live well before the lost. To remember that you're the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. That they're watching your life, making judgments about your faith based upon your character and conduct. What of Christ do your neighbours see in you? When they meet you, do they recognize there's something different about you? Are you a good testimony with the people who live next door? The people who live across the street? Or are there fences that need mending? Then Abraham proved by the making of the covenant that not only was he a believer, but as he went beyond that in gifting the seven lambs, he was generous in spirit and he was a Christian gentleman or a gentleman in nature. You know the world's crying out for that. The world needs Christians who will be generous in spirit, who are gentlemen and gentlewomen, who deal with people right. The world needs that. It needs to know when it deals with us in business that they're going to get a fair deal. They need to know that when they come to us with a complaint, they'll get a fair hearing. They need to know that if we should go with to them with a complaint that we'll be generous in our spirit. That will make a difference. That will help when someone comes and speaks to them about Christ. The door is open now. You know, there are a lot of people out there in the world whose minds and hearts are shut down to the gospel because Christians have ill-treated them in the past. And that's to our shame. Finally, we need to recognize God as El Olam, the eternal God, and realize that he's already ahead of us, that God is already dwelling in tomorrow. Uh, This removes all insecurities, all threats, all our worries about the future, because whatever happens, wherever we are, God is sure to keep his promises to us. Listen to what Isaiah says there in Isaiah 40. Hast thou not known... Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, El Olam, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles in exceptional times. They shall run in times of urgency and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint in ordinary times. And let me say this to you. Today, tomorrow, this week, for most of us, will just be ordinary. Tomorrow will just be an ordinary day for most of us. We trust. But it's a day in which God gives us a fresh opportunity to express his faithfulness in our lives and our faithfulness to our witness of him. We don't have to wait for the exceptional to happen to step up to the plate in our testimony. We should step up to the plate on the ordinary days. On the everyday, on the mundane days, on those nine to five kind of days. We should live up to our responsibility today and be every day all that God would expect us to be in our dealings with those around us. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to rise and say...